From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. Scott Shea is my guest. His new book is an exhaustive history of popular music in the 1960s and the early 70s in the guise of a biography of the mamas and the papas. And it's great. And it's called All the Leaves Are Brown, How the Mamas and the Papas Came Together and Broke Apart. Scott Shea, welcome to From the Bookshelf. Hey, Gary. Appreciate it, man. I'm, I'm happy to be here. There's so much in your book. I, I really, really loved it. Uh, and, and obviously, you did a lot of research. There's a moment in your book uh, in the story of the Mamas and the Papas where Michelle Phillips says to her bandmates, I will bury all of you. And as it happened, that's that's what occurred. <laughs> you so, sure did. <laughs> so for your, this book, which is uh, you know so well-researched, I mean, who did you talk to? I spoke to a lot of, you know, I didn't get to talk to anybody that like Lou or Michelle, they were really available. When I, when I started working on this book, I was unsigned. I was unagented. Uh, I was just writing it, you know? So, and, uh, so they were, they were pretty, uh, and, you know, I approached them. I tried to get them. I couldn't, couldn't get them, but I, I spoke to people that played with them. Dick Weisman, who played with, uh, John Phillips and the Journeyman, which is his pre Mamas and the Papas band. I spoke with, uh, D- uh, Pat LaCroix, who was with, the Halifax Three, that was Denny's, uh, pre Mamas and Papas band. I spoke with Steve Barry, who produced, you know, who was a, a session musician and songwriter with P.F. Sloan and, uh, worked for Lou Adler. And I spoke with Jill Gibson, who, uh, you know, was, uh, Michelle's temporary replacement in the summer of 1966 after John booted her out. So, oh, yeah, you and, got yeah, and a few other people, you know, that, uh, that Barry McGuire, a few others that were in, in that scene. You know, and uh just to give me kind of give me a feel for it, you know, and uh Michelle had kind of put all her thoughts into an autobiography that came out in the mid eighties. John did too. So uh that that was a great source of information. Um, you know, would love to have preferred to have talked to him, but you know, they they, they kinda nailed it all there. Uh and uh it's just it's it's a story that uh needed updating, I felt. Um it had, you know, really nobody has done anything in, in, in a couple decades. Nothing, you know, when I, when I set, sought, uh, sought to write a book, I, this kind of fell into my lap and I, you know, I looked up material. I didn't see anything written in this century. So I was like, oh, well, there you go. This is, uh, this is probably a good subject to write about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and you did a great job. It's, it was, thank you. Very fun read. And, as, as I was saying in my introduction, it's not just about the mamas and the papas because you leave no stone unturned telling the story of who they encountered. And then therefore we have, you know, we have to yeah. hear the story. We get to hear the stories of, you know, the birds and the Buffalo Springfield and the doors and everybody else. It's creaky alley. Reading and you, you devote a, a good part of your book to talking about Monterey pop and describing it as if you had been there, but I'm assuming you weren't there. <laughs> no, a little bit before my time, but <laughs> Um, and uh, your description is really vivid, but listening to your description or reading your description, I was thinking, well, you know, I didn't remember the Mamas and Papas being that terrible. So I pulled up the movie, the D.A. Pennybacker film. I have a Criterion Blu-ray of it. Right. So, uh, their performance of California Dreaming looks pretty good. I mean, it sounds good. It looks good. They look like yeah. they're all. I just think, it, you know, it could have been, what you know, it, the, the, and that's just a, a tribute to their professionalism, you know, and, uh, you know, the John and the musicians they had playing behind them. Cause, you know, Denny didn't show up to the Monterey Pop Festival until an hour or two before. Um, and like nobody had thought to, Hey, we need to rehearse, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> you know, 
a mark of also, you know, it wasn't just their performance. You know, Mich- there was technical problems. You know, Michelle's mic was out. Not that, you know, we, she was critical. If, if Cass's mic was out, that would have been a real problem. But, um, you know, it was, it was, wasn't balanced very well. Uh, you know, I think a lot of that is to Jimi Hendrix just absolutely going, uh, tapioca on his guitar, you know, just smashing it to pieces. And, uh, you know, that will affect the sound system, but also because they didn't have a chance. They had, you know, two recent hits out dedicated to the one I love and Creaky Alley that were, you know, at the top of the charts, but they didn't have time to, uh, to rehearse those. So you kind of got, you know, and I hate to kind of say it, but it's kind of like a mama's and papa's oldie show, you know, and it, back then it was so timely. You needed, you're only as, as good as your most recent hit. And, you know, in 1967, they weren't asking, you know, the Beatles to play She Loves You. They wanted to hear Strawberry Fields, you know, and same, I think the same kind of bodes for the mamas and the papas out of California. Obviously they would have played California Dream and Monday, Monday, probably, but it would have been nice if they did that. And I mean, when you go back and if, if you listen to the performance, David Crosby was very, up front he's like we're not going to play mr tambourine man and turn 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 tonight you know because that 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 festival was all about being on the cutting edge and uh you know and and in many ways i think that i think the mamas and the papas they wasn't their best night and i know you know reading through my research they'll you know they john would admit that that was not a good night for them you know to follow those new groups it must have been uncomfortable for them. I think that was accidental too. There's no way that they could have predicted that going on after the Grateful Dead, the Who, and Jimi Hendrix would be, they they would look dated, you know. Uh, and it's 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 kind of a shame. It's just it's the fickle humanity, you know. We we're only as good as our next big thing, like I just said. But you know, it's a great group, and and harmony groups, unfortunately, were kind of a casualty of the Monterey Pop Festival, and. You know, I, I've said this to, in other interviews that, you know, the Beach Boys and the Four Seasons, they kind of suffered in the wake of of Monterey Pop Festival. They got their footing back in the early 70s when there's that uh, kind of the oldies revival and those those Richard Nader concerts and American Graffiti and all those things. And um, Mackenzie Phillips. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There you go. There's a tie in. And uh uh yeah, so, uh, but the Mamas and the Papas, unfortunately, you know, they were, they had kind of imploded by then and, um, there was just no chance and they were kind of a victim of their own success. The, the, the Beach Boys often expressed regret not having done Monterey Pop when they had the chance. And they were slated very close to, the, you know, to the end there to come on. And they just, you know, you know, Brian Wilson at that point, and it was just so squirrely and his decision making and just didn't want to really leave the confines of the studio. And, and, and I think Mike Love and was, you know, he was just not into that whole scene. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, he was kind of the de facto tour leader at that point and Carl and, and them, I think they just kind of mutually agreed that this would not be, a good scene for us, you know, you know, you know, with revisionist history, if you, if they came back and they all dressed differently and played, you know, deep tracks probably would have gone over really well, but mm-hmm. you know, they, you know, they would have come in the striped shirts and the, you know, singing, yeah. singing little two scoop. And, you know, um, it's really uh, strange. And whenever I think about the 1960s, which is every day, uh, <laughs> it's amazing how much happened in such a short time. I mean, your story is a long story, but it really only, is uh, like a two-year saga of their rise and fall. Yeah, I mean, when you talk from the mamas and the papas, uh, from the from the from when they started to when they end. But you know, we also cover the the folk era too, which you know le- adds a few more years to it. You know, probably another five years. So uh, it really covers probably from about you know in depth nineteen sixty 1960 to nineteen sixty eight. 
get to your book and you talk about 1965 and the first uh, Mamas and the Papas single California Dreaming comes right at the end of 1965 uh-huh. and just looking at the amount of incredible diverse hits that were created in 1965 the atmosphere in which they they brewed their first batch of Mamas and Papas songs from Like a Rolling Stone I Can't Get No Satisfaction Help uh, sugar pie, honey bunch. Uh, I got you, babe. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the, the Wii Five. Yeah, I got you, babe. <laughs> and and then not only that. Okay, so then that's another example. So there's not only I got you, babe, but also shares all I really want to do, which was a, a great record. Too. Yeah, yeah, my favorite so, version of that song. But tell me about uh, California Dreaming. How did that record happen? Well, it was you know, and it's funny because you say it's a long process, but it took about two years. Uh, John wrote it in 63, uh, when he was still with the journeyman. Um, and, uh, it, uh, came together on a, you know, on a very cold night. They were living in Greenwich Village, he and Michelle. He, um, you know, he was, he loved to stay up at night and, and write. And, you know, he would pop his amphetamines and, and, uh, just go, just go crazy, uh, just trying to, trying to come up with the next, next great song. Cause he, you know, he was, you know, he had the music he did with the, with the journeyman, which was mostly folk centered and a lot of traditional arranged by John Phillips and Dick Weissman and Scott McKenzie. And, but, uh, you know, he was writing songs on the side that he was trying to pitch to the Brill building, which was just uptown, you know, uh, 1650 Broadway and, and the other building. I forget the number, but, um, you know, and, uh, that was kind of one of them. And he, what he, it came from, a it was biographical. You know, earlier that day, that morning, he and Michelle uh, woke up to a snowfall. It was um, one of the first uh, snowfalls of the of the year. It was in early February '63, and they took a walk around town because Michelle grew up in mostly Los Angeles and uh, Mexico City and didn't know snow cold weather too much, and she wanted to kind of go walk around in it and uh, didn't know how to dress for it though, being a California girl. So she was a little underdressed. You know, just a pair of jeans and a and a tank top and a just a just a light jacket over it. So they uh, she she was cold and they were walking down in the village and uh, you know they found a church that they stopped along the way. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, it was actually Old St. Pat's Cathedral, which was right on Moss Street, not too far from it. Uh, and uh, you know she uh, you know wanted to warm up, so she went in there, and John waited outside for her. And later that night, he's just just writing it. You know all the leaves are brown and the sky is and they they were reminiscing about California and how warm it was in California because that's where they had met they had met in San Francisco and she grew up in Los Angeles and John had spent some time out there and um so you know that night he's 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 writing the the opening line all the leaves are brown and the sky is gray and you know he really feels like he's on to something and he wakes her up out of a sleep in the middle of the night and just tells her you know write down these lyrics I'll give you half the songwriting credit which was, wasn't uncommon back in those days. 
And so she did. And then, you know, she came up with the second verse, you know, about because she knew what he's talking about. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, talked about the church line, stopped into a church, passed along the way. I got down on my knees and I pretend to pray. So, so he put that song away for, for a little while. I think he played it at a few parties, you know, that they would go to where all the folk singers would gather and, you know, had a, had a, a folk arrangement to it. And then fast forward a couple of years later when they went out to Los Angeles to try to make it as a rock and roll act, you know, which John had been fighting for a long time, but was finally resigned to, uh, cause he saw that was the, uh, that was the only choice if he wanted to make it in the music industry now. So, uh, uh, you know, he, he pulled it out and, uh, that was, went on a couple of, of auditions and, you know, eventually played it for Lou Adler who loved it. And, uh, they worked on it with Barry Maguire first because he was their hot act. He had just had Eve of Destruction, which went to, it was a, the definition of an organic number one. I mean, that song was so raw. Uh, compared to what was coming out at that time. And it was really controversial. I mean, most of the, you know, most of uh, this, you know, our society was probably in favor of the Vietnam War. And this was kind of the first song that said, no, this is not right, you know, and I'm against this. And, uh, it, it, it was a very polarizing song. I think it even polarized a lot of the owners at Dunhill, you know, and, uh, it just made a lot of them uneasy. So, but they wanted to follow up with a, with, with a song, maybe a little bit, a touch less controversial. Right. And then, you know, they brought John in and the mamas, and the papas. And, and not only did Lou like the sound, he liked John's writing. So, you know, they brought him in and they did a bunch of John Phillips songs. And then when they were in the playback and John heard Barry singing it, you know, he's just like, oh, my, you know, you know, Barry's a good singer and all. And he's he definitely got a, a unique sound. But, you know, Denny sings this so much better. And I, you know, so he talked Barry out of using that song and uh, he used another one. He did, they did end up recording it and putting it on an album. And it was the first ever recorded version, but, uh, you know, they had released. So, so uh, there is a version of Barry Maguire singing it out there. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's on his, uh, This Precious Time album. It's a deep track, as they say. <laughs> now, and, and is it the same track that the, Mamas and Papas, you. It is. It's it's the same track. There's a couple of differences. Uh, there's a harmonica solo, which they replace with a flute solo. Uh, the the um, the mamas, the, the background vocalists, they keep going when they when he says stopped into a church. I passed along the way. They go stopped into a church. You know, they they echo that the 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 call and response, which they yeah. eliminated on the Mamas and the Papas version. And it's funny if you listen to the song on headphones in stereo. And this is for all you audio files out there. <laughs> Put it on in, in stereo, and you listen to it, you'll hear right at the beginning, like a half second of Barry's original lead. They didn't swipe it all the way, you know. Oh. So you hear, you'll hear Barry, you'll hear Barry saying, "Oh, you know, for all the leaves are brown," <laughs> and then you'll hear everybody else come in. It's kind of funny, but uh, yeah. So you know, they had released "Go Where You Want to Go" as their initial single, but uh, they, you know, they played it for Lou, and Lou's like, "We got to pull that and put this one out." And it, and uh, it it took a you know it 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 had a long climb up to the charts. It didn't go number one, but it went top five. And um, it, it 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 you know I, I think it it was released in December. And I don't think it started charting till around February or March '66. But you know it's definitely come summer you know late spring summer. It was all over the radio. And what a great time for a song like that to be on the radio. It's a song that's so uh, you know. It's it's just in our blood. And I wonder what was the song that kept it from getting to number one or what were the two songs that kept it from getting to number one? Do we remember those songs as well? Gosh, off the top of my head, I don't, but I can look it up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just one of those great, great records. Well, there was such competition back then, you know. I'm sure it's a great song. It's probably like something by the Righteous Brothers. or yeah. <laughs> you know, and There was a lot of great music then, that's for sure. 
<laughs> probably the Beatles. The Beatles were always. Yeah, there. yeah, probably the Beatles or yeah. Maybe the Stones. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, are there early versions? Have you ever heard any of the like early versions of California Dreamin', the folky version? No, I didn't. The only, the, you know, I got to figure out the arrangement through. I watched an interview with P.F. Sloan, who had, you know, he, the time I started writing the book, he had passed away, and he also put out an interesting biography. He's a, he's a really interesting, flaky character, but yes. he talked about, you know, he was he came up with that introduction. They brought him in. He was kind of a wonder kid, you know. He was a very good uh, musician and a great songwriter. And uh, yeah, I think he had a bit of a contentious relationship with Lou Adler, but Lou recognized his talent, and, and he knew that we got to bring, you know, P.F. Sloan had written Secret Agent Man and, uh, you know, a bunch of other uh, hits uh, for Johnny Rivers and, 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 and some others and uh and the turtles and um so they brought him in to uh to to just kind of give the song a rock and roll arrangement because john was very john's uh was in a very a very folk arrangement it was very rigid you know and uh didn't have all that rock and roll guy right yeah so they brought him in and, and he came up with that you know the, with the arrangement and then he also came up he's and he knew every great song needed a great intro i mean every even like even today and you know in the 80s and 90s and definitely in the 50s and the 60s and have that hit song you had to have that intro that captured everybody you know you think of do you do you believe in magic or or hard day's night with that guitar you know just something that just just grabs your ear so you know he tambourine man by the birth right yeah yeah mr tambourine man absolutely great song that influenced john greatly and um so he came up with that right on the right on the fly. You know, he had John hold the you know hold some some notes on his guitar, and he played that over it. Uh, I you know I'm not a musician, so I can't tell you the keys. I, I you know I had it all written down when I was writing the book. You know, I had yeah. to have my my brother's a musician, so he would explain a lot of that to me. So he in the in that interview, he just kind of broke down how that all went, you know, and how that all played out, and uh, you know gave it the rock and roll range, which they did originally on Barry, you know, and then. Uh, and then they uh, they recorded the, a couple of days later with the mamas and the papas, and you know, they had they knew they had something big. Well, you know, when you see pictures of the mamas and the papas, they look like pictures of the Beatles. I mean, when you see pictures of the Beatles, or you watch Hard Day's Night, or Help, the Beatles seem to love each other, and I think they did love each other. Mm-hmm. You see pictures of the mamas and the papas, they look like they love each other. And or in Monterey Pop, as I was saying, they look like they're having a blast up there. Yeah. Denny, Denny leans over and says something to Michelle, uh, to Cass, and she cracks up in the middle of the song. But uh, um, uh, did they love each other or hate each other? Uh, it depends on what day you asked them. I think uh, <laughs> you know. I th- there was definitely a lot of love there. You know, Denny and John, especially Cass and Denny, um, and then you know, and I think Michelle, Michelle and Cass. I know. During their time together, they, they, it was contentious, obviously, with the, the whole Denny situation for anybody who might not know. Den, you know right before the band hit it big, Denny and Cass, or Denny and, and Michelle, Michelle, who was married to John Phillips, had an affair, or uh, I wouldn't say an affair, like a tryst, you know? And, uh, right at, it, the, right at the, of the moment of the forming of the band. Right, right, right after they got signed, you know, it, it had been bubbling under the surface till then, you know, and it, if people read the book, they'll, they'll know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But, um, it, it came to light shortly after they signed the contract and it almost really sunk them. 
And, uh, you know, I think really, uh, it was a testament to John and Denny's friendship that they, they, they say things, you know, you or I would probably kick the guy out and you know, punched him in the nose and, or just give him the cold shoulder, you know? Uh, but I think, um, the, the, uh, the rise of California dreaming kind of brought them together. Uh, and, and, and also, you know, Michelle, Cass and Michelle, their, their relationship became tenacious, um, because of that, because of that trist, because, because Cass was in love with Denny and her love was unrequited. Denny did not feel the same way. He loved her as a friend, but was not in love with her romantically. And I know Michelle and Cass, uh, later on after the breakup of the band and they both had young, young children, um, they got, they grew very close. And I think, in fact, the, the night before Cass, the, the night Cass died, the, her last phone call was to Michelle mm-hmm. to tell her how good her performance at the Palladium had gone in London. So, um, yeah, and then, you know, and then Johnny, John and, and Denny had their ups and downs, but I think they were always very close. And, you know, when John reformed the Mamas and the Papas in the early 80s, he brought Denny in, you know, and, um, he was, he was their lead singer for a while, and, you know, until he, uh, grew tired. I think John was always a very difficult guy to work with, you know, especially after drugs, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, so, but, uh, yeah, it, uh, there was just, you know, you put yourself in that position, man. I just, it'd be hard to, for anybody to go on under those circumstances. And, you know, it just the, the, the mamas and the papas were a great band, but they were kind of a lazy band and they just kind of ran out of gas. I think, I think that had a lot to do with it. And I think Cass saw the writing on the wall and wanted to just kind of move on and dream a little dream of me, which came out in their last big hit in 68. That was her springboard to, for her and the label to say, okay, let's, Cass is the hot hand right now. Let's go with her. That must have called uh, John Phillips. Oh, for sure. You know, um, it was his idea to do that song. I don't think her having, uh, you know, she had had hit records with her singing lead before. I don't think that bothered him, but I think Dunhill putting uh, on the label, on the 45 label, Mama Cass with the Mamas and the Papas probably had, uh, you know, rankled him more than, than her you know, having recording a solo album off of it. And I, you know, I think he was, I think everybody was mentally ready to move on at that point. It, it is interesting. The whole body issue uh, thing that is a, a, a part of your story. Um, if you listened to casts from the other room and you didn't see her, you would think, Oh my God, what a great voice. We can get her in our band. Let's get her. Uh, yeah, for sure. Look, but because she was fat, are you allowed to say fat? She was fat. She was overweight. <laughs> um, then he didn't, uh, John Phillips didn't want her in the band because of that. Yeah. And I think it was more than just that. I think, you know, he had envisioned a trio, you know, I think at that point we're talking early 60, early mid 65 here. And when they're in the Virgin islands, kind of vacationing, kind of recharging, resetting, trying to figure out what their next put, this is before they became famous. And, uh, I think John was, he was reticent to go into the pop music field because he didn't like pop music, at least in its current state. You know, uh, he, he was, he was older than everybody else. He was about five, at least five or six years old. He born in 1935. Everybody else was born in the early to mid forties, uh, in the group. And so, he, so he, you know, he was in his twenties when early twenties when rock and roll came out. And usually by that time, you're, you're kind of starting to check out of the, of the teeny bopper scene, you know? So, uh, he was more into jazz and, um, jazz groups like the high lows or, uh, vocal groups like the four freshmen and, uh, and the vocal airs or some other groups like that. I forget their names. 
Um, and uh, so he kind of had to be dragged kicking and screaming. He did not, he was not overwhelmed by the Beatles. He did not take to the Beatles like everybody else did. And uh, I think in his mind, he had a, wanted to kind of go Peter, Paul and Mary because Peter and Paul and Mary had survived the uh, onslaught of the British invasion. You know, that kind of wiped out a lot of the folk music scene that was going on in Greenwich Village. You know, David Crosby and Stephen Stills and Peter Tork and uh, Jim McGuinn and so many others were part of the, that folk music scene because that's kind of where the zeitgeist of the early rock and roll had gone in the early 60s because rock and roll music had gone kind of corporate by then with guys like Bobby V and Paul Anka and Bobby Rydell, all of whom I love. I love those guys. But, uh, you know, I think it was off-putting to a lot of those guys who uh, came up with Elvis and Jerry Lee and Little Richard and Chuck Berry. And uh, the Beatles kind of reined them all back. They kind of brought them all back like, oh, we can we can make good rock and roll music, you know, again. <laughs> so um, and so they dropped their Gibsons and their Martins and they picked up Rickenbackers and Fenders and, you know, Stratocasters and all these other things, you know, basses and uh, drum kit, <laughs> you know, and started forming rock and roll combos and putting the energy there. And John wanted to keep going with folk. So Peter, Paul and Mary, folk, uh, they kind of survived that. They, they incorporated some of that into their, into their, uh, recordings, you know, and, um, so he had a trio in mind and him, Denny and pretty Michelle, you know, kind of like Mary Travers. And, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, when Cass came, it, it was a combination of, I think, my, you know, my personal opinion of, of her appearance and uh, him kind of just being myopic in his thinking. Like, no, I want a trio. I want a trio. You know, I want to follow in that, that you know, something. And we're all guilty of that. We have a vision of how we want something to and – and it makes us not open to other things. And, you know, it, down in the Virgin Islands, she would sing along with them while she was waiting on tables at Duffy's, you know, and everyone would be like, John, man, she's you got to put her in the band. <laughs> you know, she's great. And it wasn't until, you know, they all met up again in Los Angeles in the in the late summer of 65 and started auditioning when she would go along with them and and sang uh, accidentally with them a couple of times. And when Lou Adler heard it, it was just there was there was no going back. It's like. Lou Adler says you're going to be a a a, a quartet. You're going to be a quartet. <laughs> you know? And 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 then of course she turned out to be the, the voice of the group and the. the yeah, can you imagine them not hearing her? And I mean, you you don't have to imagine. You can find some new Journeyman tracks where it's just Denny, Michelle, and John, and it's it's, it's enjoyable stuff. But you're you're missing Cass. You know, like where's Cass? You know. Before we went on the air, we were looking at the Mamas and Papas albums. And the, the last one, people like us, and you, you said it was underrated. And I remember when it came out, and it was a big disappointment when it came out. Yeah, and I think it was a disappointment because John was just doing what John always did. He was trying to um, be of the times, you know. You can't make a record in 1971 that sounded like 1965, or else you wouldn't be, you wouldn't make it. Um, and but you know, his problem was he mixed Cass completely off the record, and you can't hardly hear her and it's it's i don't do you i don't know if you're familiar with that birds reunion album that came out around the same time it's just called birds and it was the five original birds yeah the david crosby produced produced. and he did made the same mistake he completely mixed out jim mcguinn or roger mcguinn at that time his 12 string rickenbacker which was the signature sound even after all the original guys had left roger was still playing that rickenbacker 
and he, you know, you can hear it. You got to like strain to hear it. Uh, you know, it's really underneath, but like, had they raised that up a little bit, it might have been more well received. And, you know, somebody re, remastered, uh, um, or not, or just kind of, yeah, remastered the, uh, the people like us album and they, they went back into the multi tracks and they raised up Cass's voice. And, um, you know, some of the songs really benefit from it. I, it was Snow Queen of Texas, which I think is absolutely one of John's most brilliant songs, which was on that album. No queen of Texas left Paris in a cloud of smoke. They say she may be beaten, but I know that she's not broke. She's living in a cool green farmhouse. If you go to Houston, be quiet as a group of session players that were mostly jazz musicians and ex-Motown session musicians to just kind of give it a more uh, R&B feel. And that was just not what the Mamas and the Papas were about in the 60s. So I think a lot of people um, didn't like it. And, I, you know, being a big Motown fan and, you know, early seven, 70s jazz fusion and funk and, you know, soul and rhythm and blues, I love it. I think it's just, to me, it's like ear candy in a, a lot of places. You know, there's... You know, a few duds there, but, you know, every album, most albums have that, unless you're the Beatles. How, what role do you think drugs played in the lazy factor that you mentioned about them? Uh, well, for, for John, it was big. It was massive. It, um, you know, he, he, he was, you know, his father was an addict. His father was a, an alcoholic, uh, a, a lifelong Marine who was a functioning alcoholic when he was in the Marines. Um, but then when he was discharged, his health, which just went completely south, in the late thirties uh, and right before world war two. And um, you know, when they discharged him for health reasons, it just, you know, he became a dysfunctional alcoholic. So it ran in his family. I think his mom even developed a, a drinking problem too later on. And um, so, you know, when, when he got hooked and he got, you know, he started doing drugs in the early around 1960, late fifties, early sixties, and he got introduced to marijuana and then it just grew into LSD, which grew into cocaine, which grew into heroin and uh, just got into the, the harder stuff, just absolutely, you know, crippled him. And he wor- spent more time trying to catch that, that next high. And he put the, you know, he, as we see in the late seventies and put more energy into being a drug dealer you know, and then he did into making music because he, you know, he had a few bad runs there. He, uh, you know, he was, he had that 
he really released a solo album on Dunhill on a on a Warlock subsidiary Warlock subsidiary they created just for him because they you know Dunhill wanted him to be in the picture they knew how great he was and what his potential was and so they they created a subsidiary label just for him and just only his solo album one other album came out on it and then he you know he signed with Columbia and then that deal kind of fell through and then he did the you know the reunion album with the Mamas and the Papas and then you know he started working on this uh this musical about space that uh just ate up his time he got his creative juices flowing but when when that got you know it was absolutely i I had the that was released the the uh recordings for that and it's just it's just terrible it's just you know for especially for a musical i can't imagine uh broadway bus really taking it and it got really panned it was an andy warhol broadway broadway production so that should just lead you to how strange it was and it just didn't last very long a couple of shows uh, I know they fired the director right before they they their their launch on <laughs> off Broadway and you know yeah. and and John got fired from his role in his own show so I think it sent sent him on a real downward spiral you know the the Rolling Stones Keith Richards and Mick Jagger tried to tried to pick him up they brought him over to London to to record some songs and that just with being around Keith Richards that just turned him you know who introduced him to uh, medicinal cocaine. And that just just sent him on a downward spiral, and um, you know, got him to the point where the DA, the DEA, arrested him, you know, for his uh, drug dealing uh, prescription, bogus prescription plans, and you know that uh, it, it it saved him, you know, because he ended up uh, going cold turkey and and getting clean. But then he also, you know, like a lot of people in that situation do, they, they turn to something else. So turn to drugs and uh, alcohol and cigarettes and that uh, eventually, you know, ended it, ended it all too short. I think he was only 60. He was about to be 66 when he died. Oh, it's, it's a great book. I, I really love it. Um, and um, I'm, I've enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. The book again is called all the leaves are Brown, how the mamas and papas, came together and broke apart and the author Scott Shea thanks again for being with us on From the Bookshelf well, I appreciate it if you don't mind I'd just tell everybody they go to scottsheaauthor.com and Shea is spelled S-H-E-A I'll link you to all my socials and the places where you can purchase the book at all any place they sell fine books Scott Shea author of All the Leaves Are Brown How the Mamas and Papas Came Together and Broke Apart I'm Gary Shapiro this is From the Bookshelf Another great vocal group from the era of the Mamas and the Papas was the Association. An important member of the Association was the singer and songwriter Terry Kirkman. He was the writer of several of the band's hits, such as Cherish and Everything That Touches You, as well as a vocalist for the Association. Terry Kirkman passed away on September 23, 2023, at the age of 83. I had the opportunity to talk with Terry Kirkman a few years ago, so let's listen back to that interview now. The Association, they were a great group in the 60s. They had a unique sound with with wonderful harmonies. What what was their origin story? We formed at Los Angeles. We were originally uh, in a folk group that was uh, the house band at the Troubadour, still a major club in the United States, and arguably one of the top two or three most powerful clubs, showcase places in the in the country, if not the world then. And just by fluke, we ended up being the house band, we were a group of guys, all guys, and we were called the men. And we were the first, first group in the United States 
working act to be called folk rock. Before and the birds, you say? The birds were actually, when they were the Beefeaters, yep. they were rehearsing in the front room of the Troubadour, and we were rehearsing in the big room. Oh. And we were the first people in print. To whatever, <laughs> whatever kind of claim that is. No, that's a uh, major claim, isn't it? To be called folk rock. Did, w- yeah. did you get along well with Doug Weston, the uh, owner of the Troubadour? Nobody did. <laughs> so how did the men become the association? Uh, the men was too big to sustain itself. It was originally a 13-person uh, act, and then it was an 11. And if you're only making... A few hundred dollars a week, then you you can't pull it off. Even though we had a we had a folk house, a really nice house that we all lived in, or most of the guys lived in, like that. It just you couldn't do it. And uh, so we six of us walked out of the the room one day and kind of split the men down in the middle without any animosity. Just I think we're done here. And within a couple of hours, we had named ourselves the association more as a kind of a joke than anything else. Mm-hmm. And that was it. I love that album cover of all the Association album covers. I like the one where it's like Stonehenge that says the Association. Were you with the band when they did that one? Yes. Yeah, that was a great cover. I remember the at least the Association records that I had were on Warner Brothers, but you were originally on a different label. We were on a label called Valiant that was actually formed around us and two other acts. Shelby Flint, who is a wonderful female singer, who has been one of the highest-paid studio singers in in Los Angeles for all these decades. And I don't remember who the third act was. Well, how did Valiant Records come to be in your life? How did that happen? They auditioned for acts, and uh, we... Uh, I, I, just like with the men, I, w- I was almost through the association. We had a, we had a fan club of 20,000 people, and we couldn't get a record deal because nobody could identify the genre of our music, which is really hard to get your head around right now. There was one thing if you were playing straight-ahead folk rock, but uh, Along Comes Mary and Cherish and some of the other songs we were doing on our first album defined categorization as far as the record world was concerned. And if a marketing people can't sell it, if they don't have an outlet for it, they're not going to buy it. So while we had that 20,000 people as a fan club and could guarantee at least 20,000 records, uh, nobody would touch us because there wasn't a radio format set up to play that music yet. But, but nevertheless, Valiant signed you, and d- did you have a hit record right away or not? Uh, we got some noise with our first thing, and uh, which was One Too Many Mornings, the Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan song. song. Uh-huh. And then we, we released Along Comes Mary.
Uh, now, I remember seeing you guys on the Smothers Brothers show. We were quite close with the Smothers Brothers. Yeah? Yeah, Sherry Smothers, their sister, lived in the big folk house with all the rest of us. And we were all, we were all a part of the same folk club circuit. And the Smothers Brothers were, were a folk act. They right, weren't, right. They, they weren't right. a television act. They were a folk act that played the Ice House and the Troubadour and all the rest of the, the Purple Onion. Uh, we're chatting with Terry Kirkman, and uh, he was one of the founding members of the association. So w- was that one of your first big television appearances on the Smothers Brothers, or had you guys been on a lot before that? You know, I... In writing an article today for HuffPost, I was researching my own group, yeah. and and I ran across a blurb that said that we were on every major television show. Uh, no, uh, uh, Smothers Brothers would have been way down the line in terms of our performances. We were the first self-contained rock group ever on the Andy Williams show, which was the biggest show in the country at the time. I think we were the first self-contained rock group on the Mike Douglas show, the Red Skelton show, the Steve Allen show, all sorts of specials. There's about 40 or 50 major television shows, two Sullivan shows. Were you, were you surprised when this all happened to you? Uh, everybody is. <laughs> No one is prepared for that. Uh, no, that, no. When when it starts to happen at that rate, uh, it's both a blessing and a curse. What what were some of the curse aspects of it? Uh, you're not prepared to handle it. Effects that it has on you psychologically in terms of, do I deserve this? Don't I deserve it? Do I want this much attention? Why can't I be alone? Uh, what am I doing on the road 250 days a year? What happened to my private life? Too uh, much, too fast, you know. Yeah. Well, it, it messes as many people up as it does uh, help them. A few months ago, we had an author on the show. His name is Kent Hartman, and he wrote a book called The Wrecking Crew. It was all about the studio musicians who played mm-hmm. on dozens mm-hmm. of 60 sets. And his book says that the association didn't play the instruments on their records. Is that true or false? True. <laughs> and how did you guys feel about that? Was that Okay. No, it was, uh, in our first album, we had studio musicians and ourselves. Our second album, we played a lot of our own instruments. And once we got into the Warner Brothers thing, Warners wanted our albums done like clockwork. So the playing that we did with Valiant was more on our own terms. And it's uh, again, it's hard to remember that our first album was done on two four-track machines. Hmm. Okay, uh, so whatever overdubbing or anything that was even remotely resemble an, an effect or multiple tracking was was a very very painstaking business of transferring one machine to another, back to the other trying to get the levels right so they would master well. And, the, you know, it, it was honest-to-God rocket science. Then when we got into, when Jerry Esther got fired by Warner Brothers as our third album, and Bones Howe was 
was hired because he'd done the mamas and the papas. Mm-hmm. He was actually the engineer. He wasn't the producer. Warner Brothers uh, started having a lot of mandates. And so we were doing complete albums. And I mean complete. Uh, we, you know, entering it, it, just sitting down to do the song selection. And then think about arranging them and, and how the whole album would sound to the very, very end all in 40 days. Wow. And that's 12 songs. And groups now routinely take a several months to a year or two or three years to do an album. Well, even your contemporaries, like, say, the Beatles, took six months to make Sgt. Pepper. Yes. Brian Wilson spent six months working on Good Vibrations. Did you stand by as a group uh, your records, or did you feel that you the records were not you? Both. recently wrote in the Huffington Post about Cherish, and, and I sort of think of Cherish as a slow song, but you said it was too fast. It was certainly faster than I heard it in my head when I wrote it, and it wasn't a particularly danceable tune, uh, which saddened me. And lots of our tunes did not come out that were intended to be more danceable weren't. I think when you have a democratic group, and you have that kind of swept away scheduling hassle when your life becomes so dense and so filled with being on the road. If you're on, two, if you're on the road over 200 days a year and you're trying to be creative and that's 200 back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back days, that's no sit-down, very, very rarely more than three or four days of sit down, you know, like being in a town where you're, you're not hopping on a plane or getting on a bus or driving off someplace. You know, it, it was, it was, we were carbon. There's someone who can cherish me as much as I cherish you. And I 
by the time I left the group, I was so burnt out, and not from drugs and booze. I was just done. Just from the grind of performing. The grind it, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Almost nobody's marriage survived. And and actually, one of the members of the group did not survive. You're a bass player. Brian Cole died in August 4th, 40 years ago. 72. And then you left the group shortly thereafter. Was there a connection? I left a uh, year, year and a half after that. The last album he performed on was the last album I recorded with the Associate. I was just, I was done. I also wanted to leave the group to do anti-war work, civil rights work that I thought was actually more important than getting up in... Making a pop record. Yeah, making a pop record or wiggling my butt on stage to <laughs> uh, to date night crowds. Well, I just want to ask about, um, in terms of wiggling one's butt on stage, um, there was a concert, uh, it was a famous concert, where Jimi Hendrix lit his guitar on fire, and The Who and Janis Joplin really captured international attention. That was the Monterey Pop Festival, and you guys were the opening act at that festival, yes? We were. It was sort of like being cannon fodder for the the Viet Cong. To open up the uh, first Monterey International Pop Festival, we'd like to give you the association... check, lighting check. <laughs> uh, that's a really frustrating topic for, for me. It always has been. We had just finished an album. Had we had the album material in our repertoire just four weeks later, had we, had, 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 we, had we played that just four weeks later, I think our experience would have been totally different. We would have, we would have performed Requiem for the Masses. And there was no song like that that had ever been done mm-hmm. by a pop group. The United States government stomped all over it when it was the B-side to Never My Love. Mama, mama, forget your prize. faith they won't get cold. And turn your eyes to the bloodshot sky. Your flag is flying full at half past. For the matadors who turn their backs to please the crowd. They had long fell before the boat. Black and white were the figures that recorded him. Black and white was the newsprint he was mentioned in. Black and white was the question that so bothered him He never asked, he was taught not to ask What was on his lips as they buried him the masses is a anti-war song right uh, two of us begged the, the group not to do it we had a little piece of shtick 
<laughs> that we would do in uh, date night crowds that was called the Association Machine. It was just totally wrong for the Monterey Pop Festival. Uh, but we sang well, we performed well, and kind of got cut out of the mix. But a, a lot of people, Otis Redding yeah, uh, or Nero, lots of people walked away from that festival really unhappy about what had been represented up front and what they what they got in in return you know mm-hmm. uh, the, but the public sees it only in iconic context mm-hmm. all that money that was supposed to be given to uh, uh, legalize marijuana out of the Monterey pop festival I, I don't think more than a few bucks ever made it to that uh, we're we're talking with Terry Kirkman and he was one of the founding members of the association, and uh, for the last 22 years, you've been an addictions counselor, and you kind of work with a lot of people who were in show business? Yes. I, I My last big job was clinical director of the Musicians Assistance Program, MAP, which has now, with the death of the founder of MAP, was absorbed into the Grammy Foundation's Music Cares Program. And what we did at MAP, we were completely self, just, we were completely autonomous. There was about five of us doing this huge amount of work, and our budget was $2 million a year, and we gave 70% of it away to uninsured rank-and-file musicians, all professional people, or anybody in the music business who was having substance abuse problems. Well, do you, do you think now, um, you know, having gone through this experience, that the recreational drug use of the 60s that was popularized by rock and roll groups was misguided? Yes. Well, that's a concise answer there. It's not just rock and roll. I think that when people just started saying, hey, have you taken this? What is it? I don't know, but it really gets you messed up. Oh, here, give it to me, and then I take it. Whether it was PCP, which which was really the drug that your grandmother and mother warned you about, mm-hmm. uh, there were ho- horrendous drugs that came down the pike. Had it stayed marijuana and wine out of boda bags, it probably would have been a really nice trip. Yeah, throw a little LSD in there and and hope that people don't end up in psychiatric hospitals or jump off of buildings like hundreds and hundreds of people did, thousands of people did. Uh, But San Francisco, in all of its just absolutely stunning, wonderful peace and love vibe, which lasted about two years, San Francisco and Greenwich Village, which had very much the same feel, with pot and booze and and a little acid thrown in, all of a sudden became the homicide capitals of the world. Actually, Santa Cruz became the homicide capital of the whole country. Yes, we we have that claim to fame. But but all of a sudden, when methamphetamine hit the streets, violence was, it was like, uh, it was like an Arab Spring. It was, it was just stunning. 
there were 35 murders uh, a month in Golden Gate Park. Uh, walking the streets of Greenwich Village was no longer safe to do at night. Particularly not safe at 2 or 3 in the morning when all the speed freaks were starting to come down. Um, so, yeah, yeah, uh, the whole world was misguided in that regard. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I'm clean and sober 28 years now. Glad to hear. And when I was 32, I had 36 dead friends. Mm-hmm. So you can't just say, well, whoop de doo it's really cool to be high. Uh, uh, Buddy Arnold, the guy who cr- created MAP, the Musician's Assistance Program, was uh, he billed himself as the world's oldest living Jewish junkie jazz player. <laughs> Uh, he'd been in every federal prison for, you know, writing bad script and selling drugs and stealing, you know, stuff to, to get high. Buddy's motto was, don't buy the lie, it ain't hip to die. When I was 32 years old, I had 36 dead friends. The late Terry Kirkman, singer, songwriter, drug abuse counselor. He passed away on September 23rd at the age of 83. That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program and we'll come back and see us again next time. I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.